You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. Friday, uh, Lewis and Debbie invited us to a walk through Bethlehem at Damascus uh, Road Community Church. And it's a, it, it takes you through the events of, of Christmas, the story of Christmas. And we are led by a shepherd, and the shepherd was always asking, where is the king? Where is this king that has been born? Do you know about this king who has been born? Well, today we are going to be part two of a part three series entitled Light Has Dawned. And we will be focusing on the events of Bethlehem and what that means for us. In fact, this famous account of the birth of Jesus is unique to the book of Matthew. It highlights the wise men, the magi from east, who came to look for Jesus, this king who was to be born. They came searching for the one that they said who had been born king of the Jews. Listen as Jamie reads this encounter from Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them that time, what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. And listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I call my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. They refused to be comforted because they are no more. 
But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard the Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, and what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father, again, as we gather around your word this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would just continue to do your work of grace in our lives, that as, as we hear about this king who's been born, what does that mean for us? How is he my king? What are those areas in my life that I have not submitted to for that reign? So, Lord, do that work of grace, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, we're going through the series called Timothy Keller's work called Hidden Christmas. And so, again, I'm going to be highlighting many of the things that he has said in the book. First, we're going to look at the surrounding history of the birth of Christ. And then we're going to look at what that means for us. And we're going to break it down into the threat of Christ and his kingdom, the exposure of our own kingly hearts, and the weakness of Christ and his kingdom. So let me think about this. When one comes into a palace, and this one comes to the king and says, where is the king? Thinking that, that those people would have already realized who the king was when they spoke to, it's going to alarm that person, is it not? That one actually sitting on the throne. We see in this passage that Herod was disturbed. Now, that's probably one of the most understated words that we see in Scripture. Herod was, was disturbed, but he was more than disturbed. Why? Herod was a violent ruler. Even by the standards of his time, he killed many members of his, of his, of his court, his own family, who, who did not want to obey him or, or to ensure that he has absolute power over everyone. So after he heard the report of the Magi, right, the, these wise men, he consulted the, the Jewish scholars of the day. And they confirmed to him that, yes, the Messiah that was prophesied, prophesied was to be born in Bethlehem. But we see his true motive. He really didn't want to go and worship this new king. He wanted to kill this baby. That was his true motive. And so once the wise men found Jesus and worshipped him, they were warned, as, as the passage has said and as Amanda highlighted, they were warned in a dream by God to go another way without telling Herod. Now think of Herod. Do you think he was happy about that? No. Um, he, again, we see, was greatly troubled and was disturbed, realizing that he has been tricked, right? The, the brutal king slaughtered all the male two years and younger in Bethlehem. Why? To make certain that there would be no ruler alive that could threat his kingship. And based on the population of the village of Bethlehem during that time, there would have been 20 to 30 babies, male babies killed, children killed. Interestingly, while we find ourselves this disturbing, hopefully we find it disturbing, such atrocities were so commonplace in Herod's reign that it didn't even merit any other historical mention. Nonetheless, as you can imagine, it was de devastating for that community. Now think about having a child taken from you and brutally murdered before your eyes is the worst nightmare of a parent. 
See, Jesus too would have been victim of this genocide, except that Joseph was warned by a, by a, in a dream by God as well. And in that dream, he told him to leave Bethlehem to Egypt. So why did God tell him to go to Egypt? Well, probably there was a large community in Alexandria, Jewish community in Alexandria, Egypt, where those who had fled there for political differences. So Jesus, Joseph took his family there. I like how Keller relates current-day situations even to, to then. He says, we hear much about refugees from war, persecution, and oppression. Here we see that Jesus himself was once a refuge, refugee driven out by, his, out by his homeland. See, only after Jesus, Herod died, did Joseph then take his family, again, warned by a dream, told God by a dream, to Judea and settle in Nazareth. So, so what? <coughs> Why has Matthew preserved this historical account? Let me just to remind you that every account of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, had an enormous amount of information to draw from. And each writer was selective, and they chose to tell something from the life of Jesus that they wanted to tell for two reasons, at least two reasons. First, they wanted to account something that was historically true, that actually happened. That was the first reason. The second reason reveals something essential, important for us to know and to understand. It reveals something about who Jesus really is and what he came to do and what his message and ministry were. So what is Matthew trying to tell us here in this encounter? What is the meaning of Christmas? What is, what, what is it that we need to know about Jesus? Well, the first something that we need to understand and know about Christmas is the threat of Christ and his kingdom. See, the account of deception and of fear, of bloodshed, of injustice and homelessness is all too familiar even with us today. Keller reminds us great evil is abroad in our world. However, when we ask where that evil comes from, often controversy erupts. Keller lays out two things. He said, at one end of the scale, there are those who say that rich and powerful are the ones to blame. This view tends to make the poor and minorities the heroes of the world's story. Then at the other end of the scale are those who insist that immoral, irresponsible people are the main problem. And this tends to make hardworking, decent, middle-class people the heroes of the story, and both the poor and the immoral elites the villains. Now, at first sight of this account, we might say it, it, that makes more, and it's in line more with that first theory, that Herod was an arrogant, ruthless, rich ruler abusing his power and slaughtering innocent people. And we see throughout the Bible, from, from the old to the new, that the, one of the primary themes is that God does take care of those who are oppressed. He's against those who oppress the poor. However, as the full teaching of the Bible is that the source of the world's evil is every human heart. King Herod's reaction to Christ dare I say it, is a picture of us all. If you, if you want to be king, right, if you want to have control over your life, and when someone comes and says, no, I'm the, I'm the king, I'm the one to control now your life, that one who have, you have given that control over to you now sits on that throne. And we're not eager to give up that throne often in our lives. 
You see, Jesus came claiming to be God. He, he claimed that I'm to be king over you. In fact, he says this in Luke. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own wife, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, let me be clear. Jesus is not commanding us literally to become hateful towards our own family. He is rather calling us to have an allegiance to Jesus that's, that is so complete, that is so absolute, that it makes all other relational commitments look weak by comparison. If it is a claim of absolute authority, a summons to unconditional loyalty, let's be honest, it often triggers deep resistance within every human heart, yours and mine included. This is a threat to us. In fact, Matt, in, in Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul reminds us that it's our, it's our natural state, that the human mind is literally um, enmity or hatefulness towards God and that does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. See, at the core of every human heart, the core of your heart and my heart, is an impulse that says, no one tells me what to do, right? In your relationships with your children, right? That's the battle. Do not tell me, mom or dad, what to do. Or in your spousal relationships, right? The wife or the husband, do not tell me what to do, but there is that competition, right? See, cultural and training can, can go a long way towards, towards helping us to hide that deep instinct, even from ourselves. Now, we do want to be cooperative. We want to be a team player. We want to be considered a kind and loving person. We want to see ourselves that way too. But there are many ways, many reasons why it is necessary for us to, to live in denial as to how powerful that instinct is to have control. However, no amount of education or therapy can remove it. It is the core of our being. We want to have control. And anyone who, does, who competes with that, it's going, it's going to be a battle. And according to the Bible, the evil of the world ultimately stems from this self-centeredness, from this self-righteousness, and from the self-absorption of every human heart. Each of us, if we're honest, want everything to orbit around ourselves, right? Our needs, our desires need to take priority. We do not really want to serve God or our neighbor. No, we want them to serve, our, to serve us. Now again, don't throw things at me. But let me be clear, every heart is a little King Herod. Do you hear me? Every human heart, there's a little King Herod that wants to rule and that is threatened by everything that may compromise its power and control. As a famous literary book beautifully depicts, each of us wants to be the captive of our own soul and the master of our fate. There's a natural enmity of every human heart against all claims of sovereign rule over it. It raises up a little when minor claims are made over us. But Jesus' claim of authority are ultimate and infinite. No heart unaided can gladly surrender to them. In fact, Paul also says in his book of Romans, there is no one righteous, not even one, there's no one who understands. No, there's not one who seeks God. Now, many may think that Paul's statement is a huge exaggeration. You might say, it is true but that no one is perfectly good and righteous. But how can one say that, that there's no human being who seeks for God? 
Aren't there millions of sincere seekers after God? Keller then shares this, that the answer of Christian theologians over the centuries have been, have been to make two distinctions. He first says this. First, they argued to want the things God gives, love, help, strength, forgiveness, happiness, is not to actually seek or want God himself. Many people seem to be seekers, but they are more like gold diggers who befriend or marry only for money. The evidence for this view is strong since so many people confess that they have left the faith because their lives are not going as they want it and God was not answering their prayers. That's the first. The second theologians argue people may seek God as they want him to be, but no one seeks God as he reveals himself to be in the Bible. Keller then shares about a talk show that he was watching years ago that had an atheist as a guest. And the host was a believer in God, but in their discussion, the atheist had the better argument of the debate. And so in frustration, the host did what is typical of Americans. He took a poll of the audience. And he asked, how many of you believe in some kind of God? What do you think? The majority raised their hands, did they not? And I suppose that the TV host thought he won the argument, but he had not. And Keller goes on to say, and I would say the same thing, I wonder what would happen if he instead asked the, the audience this question. How many of you believe in the God of the Bible, the God who comes down on Mount Sion in fire and smoke, who says, I will in no way clear the guilty, who tells human beings that anyone who approaches his glory, he or she will die instantly. How many believe in that God? How many hands would go up then? See, this shows us one of the hidden truths of Christmas, the dark historical episode of King Herod's violent lust of power points to our natural resistance to and hatred of the claims of God's and his control in our lives. See, we create God in our own liking and we mask our hostility to the real God who reveals himself as our absolute king. And if, and if the Lord is, that was born as king, and if he is the true God, then no one will seek for him unless our hearts are supernaturally changed to want and seek him. This is true both for the irreligious and religious people. In religion, we try to tame God. I know that I do. Seeking to put him in our debt. We do many things that he, so he tries to bless us in ways that we want. In the Bible, religious people were just as hostile to the authority of God as their king as their irreligious. The religious, though, find religious ways to express it and hide it. See, where is the true king that the, the, the Magi asked is the most disturbing, not only for King Herod for him to consider, but it's the most disturbing question every human heart will have to experience since we want at all costs to remain on the throne of our own lives. We may reuse religion to stay on that throne, trying to put God into the position of having to do our bidding because we are so righteous, rather than serving him unconditionally. Or we may flee from religion, become atheists, and, and loudly claim that there is no God. Either way, we are expressing our natural hostility to the lordship of the true king. 
So the question we all must ask, do I, do you know that there's a deep hostility in your heart towards God? See, the message and meaning of Christmas exposes our kingly hearts. We want to rule ultimately. So not so, so, un, so much not unlike, I mean, so much like King Herod. See, we think that I'm being, if you think I'm being too harsh or exaggerating, then may I challenge us, do we really know ourselves? Or do, do, we, are we, do we have a sense of reality? Let me remind you of a few things. For those who are unsure of Christianity, or perhaps even the existence of God, remember that you are not objective. I love how, how Keller shares about Thomas Nagel, a philosopher who is an atheist, who is freshly candid about his feelings. Listen to what this atheist says. He says, I'm talking about the fear of religion itself. I'm speaking from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true, and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are believers. It isn't just that they don't it isn't just that I don't believe in God, and naturally I hope that my belief is right. I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not rare. See, Nagel's phrase, cosmic authority problem, almost exa exactly aligns with the apostles' declaration that all human beings naturally resent the claims of divine sovereignty. In fact, Nagel adds in a footnote that he doubts there is anyone, this is an atheist, right? There's anyone who's generally indifferent as to whether there is a God. There's no one really neutral about whether Christmas is true. If the Son of God was really born in a feeding trough, in a manger, then we have lost the right, all of us, to be in charge of our lives. And who can be objective about that claim? If it is true, means you have lost control of your life, right? You can't be objective. Keep in mind that if you don't believe in Christianity, I would encourage you to question your doubts, as Nagel himself was questioning his own doubts. For those of us who are Christians, who might say, how can we be enemies of God? How can our hearts still be an enmity towards God? How can our hearts still want to hate him since we are Christians? Doesn't Paul say that, that Jesus came to reconcile ourselves to him, that we have peace with him? Amen and yes. Amen and yes. A beautiful, awesome truth and reality for all Christians is that he has reconciled us to Christ. He has forgiven us. We are cleansed through Christ in faith. But you still must recognize that we still have a heart with residual, residual hostility and restlessness with God. It is still there. Until we get to the end of time and we are glorified, when Jesus comes again and when our perfect bodies and our perfect souls are together, it is still there until that time. So let's take it practically. Why do you think it's so hard to pray? Why do you think it's so hard to pray? 
Why do you think it's hard to concentrate on the most glorious person possible? Jesus, right? And when God does answer your prayer, why do we say, oh, I'll never forget this, Lord, but soon you do anyway? Or how many times I said, Lord, I will never do this again. And then two hours later, you're doing it again. In Romans 7, Paul declares in a very convicting way, what I hate, I do. What I hate, I do. There is, as I reminded you before, that we have a little King Herod inside of us. So it means that we need to be intentional about our Christian growth. We need to be intentional about developing a vertical relationship with the Lord and about being in accountability to other people who help us break these patterns that we want to hold on to. See, God still has work to do in us personally and corporately to bring his gracious rule in our lives. So the question for us, as our, key, our hearts want to rule instead of Christ wanting to rule, what areas in your life do you need to submit control to Jesus? What are those areas that you are still holding on to where you need to say, no, Jesus, you are my king in every aspect of my life, in every room of my life, Jesus, I want you to be Lord. Help me to see in those areas where, they, where you're not. You see, Christmas means that, that Jesus, King Jesus, has come into the world to rule over us with grace and truth. The Bible boldly claims that he comes not just once, but twice. The second time he will come in power in order to end all evil, all suffering, and all death. But the first time, this time that we're focusing on this morning, this Christmas coming he does not come in strength, but he comes in weakness to a poor family in a stable. The weakness of Christ in his kingdom. See, Jesus doesn't behave like the kings the world expects. He had no academic credential, no social status. When Joseph brought his family back, he settled in a far corner from the center of world power. He went from the furthest where he could go. He went to Nazareth. Jesus, born in a feeding trough, in a manger. He was raised as a Nazarene. What does that mean to us? Well, what, is, what does Scripture say when Nathaniel was heard about Jesus and he heard that he came from Nazareth? It says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? So everyone who, in Judea looked down from folks from the backwater of Nazareth. And yet God chooses that his son, the son that he beloved, son that he delighted in, to be born in such an unimpressive, weak way. See, the world has always despised people from wrong places and with wrong credentials. We're always trying to justify ourselves and make ourselves look good to others. There's a need in all of us to desperately feel superior to others. Everything about Jesus contradicts and opposes that impulse. God is not concerned with our credentials. And we hear you hear amen. Hear amen. God is not concerned about your credentials or my credentials. The Bible's teaching is not only that God does not operate that, but he habitually operates in a very opposite way. 
The greatest person in the history of the world was born in a feeding trough. And from Nazareth, may that impact you. See, this mindset is throughout the Bible. God initially brings the message not through the power of the day, through the Egyptians, through the Babylonians, through the Romans, through the Assyrians, but through the Jews, a small nation and a little race that was seldom in power. But we also see it throughout biblical history. We see it with David, a shepherd boy, winning over Goliath, a powerful giant. God works in the younger sons, not the older sons, when in culture, older sons had more status. In society where beauty and fertility was important, God works through Sarah, old, very old Sarah, and not young Hagar, the unattractive Leah, not the beautiful Rachel. He works through Hannah, who can't have children, and the barren Elizabeth, and this poor teenage girl, Mary. Why? Is it because God is for the underdogs? No. Salvation is on his mind. He wants people to come and taste and see that I am good and my kingly rule is gracious and loving and kind. See, every other religion or moral philosophy tells you to summon up your own strength and live as you ought. Every other religion appeals to the strong, to the people who, put, who have their acts together. See, only Jesus says, I have come for the weak. I have come for those who admit they are weak. I, have, I will save them, not because of what they do, but because of what I have done. See, throughout Jesus' life, the apostles and the disciples keep saying, Jesus, when are you going to take power and rule and save the world? And Jesus keeps reminding them, you don't understand. I'm going to leave all my power. I'm going to lose all my power. And I'm going to die to save the world. At the climax of his life, he ascended not to a throne, but to a cross. He came as our substitute to bear evil and suffering and death, the consequence for all our turning from God. He did this so that if we believe, we can be reconciled to him. And so when he comes as king the second time, listen, he can end all evil and suffering without ending us. So Jesus' weakness is really his strength. So where does that bring us? Where does that leave us? Keller says it leads us to a comfort and a challenge. It leads us to a comfort. Because I passionately believe in this message, I don't care who you are. I don't care about your social status. I don't care about what political party you're in. I don't care how bad you've messed up. I don't care how many dark secrets you may have. If you repent and you come to God through Jesus, not only will God accept you, not only will God forgive you, not only God will make you clean and made whole, he will continue to work in your life. And he immediately delights to work in people like you and me. He's done that throughout all history. That is the comfort. But the challenge for Christians everywhere is that we must be mindful of that grace that we've been given. Yes, we need Christians to be in the centers of government power, uh, cultural power, entertainment power, technology power, wherever. But everything about Christmas teaches us not to have our heads turned by such people, to be immense by such people, 
and not to be prejudiced in their favor. Christians must also live among them and love them and serve them as our neighbors. They must do so with no need, listen, or desire to get into the inner circle of coolness and power. Christmas means that race, pedigree, wealth, status do not ultimately matter. It means not being prejudiced towards the poor and not being biased against for the well-off. I love what Keller said. You must not be snobs or snobs about snobs. Christians who understand the meaning of Christmas can be liberated from such desire to have power and control. In fact, it is because of Jesus, who he is and what he's done, that turns the idea of success and of power and of meaning upside down. Oh, Father, help us to truly understand the meaning of Christmas. Because it is, it is a radical meaning. It means that if you came to be king, to be born as a king, we do not have any absolute control of our lives. You are to be the ruler of every aspect of our life. Lord, we know we struggle with that. Lord, we do not want to give things over to you at all at times. We think we know better. We think we have a better plan. We don't think you would do this or you do that. And yet, Lord, you came as a king to rule over us in grace and mercy and kindness. What, what other king would sacrifice his life for us? What other king would receive the wrath of God for us? What other king would take the penalty of our sin for us? What other king would be born so humbly in poverty? What other king would die for people who reject it, resist it, have enemy towards you, yet you willingly died on our behalf so that we could be reconciled, that we could be forgiven, that we could be renewed, that we could be changed, that we could actually submit all of our lives unto you. Oh God, continue that work. Thankful that you gladly want to continue that work in each one of us who know you. Father, those who may not know you this Christmas season, Father, help them to question their doubts about their, what they're putting their faith in and help them to see this king who has come to give life, to give purpose, to give meaning, to give grace. Do that work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org.